0: Amen. We are people of the King, and we are here this morning to continue our study through uh, the beginning of Matthew. If you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 1. It being Advent season, we are studying the birth of our King. I mentioned last week that I feel like Luke often gets all the Advent love. He has the more expanded birth narrative. Um, But we are focusing on Matthew this year, and one of the key themes that he pulls out is just Jesus' kingship. Last week, we looked at the first part of Matthew 1 that has the genealogy of Jesus, and we saw that Matthew is connecting everything in the Old Testament, all of the history, all that the Old Testament encompasses, and he's connecting it to Jesus, saying that Jesus is the one who fulfills these promises This morning, we're going from that 30,000 foot view, zooming all the way in to the actual birth of Jesus. Matthew shares more of Joseph's perspective. The Gospel of Luke sticks more with Mary's POV. And in that, we're, we're still though going to look at the ways that Jesus fulfills all of the promises that have come before. And then because of our perspective through redemption history, we can see who this Jesus became. So we're gonna look back and see how his birth fulfills this promise. But then we're gonna look ahead in Jesus' life to see the ways that Jesus is the perfect bridegroom and he is an even better husband than Joseph, who's a pretty good example. We're gonna see that that Joseph is a pretty faithful husband, but Jesus is even better. It's a lesser to greater argument. So if you would turn with with me to Matthew chapter one, and if you would stand in honor of the reading of God's word. We will read verses 18 to 25. Now the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did, not, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Father, we stand under this word that has been read, and now um, we will listen to this preached word. Would you... Use the time that you have given me this week in study and preparation, and would you speak to us by your Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that conceived the, the infant Jesus in ways that we can't fully scientifically understand, but we read it and we trust it. Would you help us to have that same trust Now, in your word, and if it be your will, even by your Holy Spirit, would you cause new birth to happen in the heart of someone who's hearing my voice this morning? New birth, not in the womb of a virgin, but in the heart of a sinner who up until this point is spiritually dead. Would you cause new life to happen? And we will give you the glory that you deserve as our King. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. In verse 18, Matthew begins, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. This was no ordinary birth. There is something special about this birth. This birth was promised beforehand. My first point is a promised birth. If you remember our genealogy that Matthew gives, starts with Abraham and then the the key verb is that he was the father The father, this person fathered this person, this person fathered this person. We hear that 42 times that someone fathered someone else. Notably, Matthew does not say that Joseph fathered Jesus. There is a change here. There's a break in that flow. Joseph took his wife, but before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. I will try to keep this message as PG as possible, but uh, the subject matter is tough. Joseph and Mary had not come together yet in the biblical sense. She was a virgin and yet she was found to be with child. Matthew connects this, this conception to the prophet Isaiah. That's the verse that he, uh, he quotes in verse 23, That's from Isaiah 7 and if we think back to that context, I'm not going to read um, from Isaiah because it's really chapters 7 and 8 and 9 and 10 and 11. There's this big thought happening in Isaiah. And thinking about it being the beginning of Isaiah, there is impending judgment that is coming on Israel. The prophets were sent to Israel and to the kings to warn of how their disobedience was leading them toward consequences that were impending. And so in Matthew or sorry, in Isaiah 7, Isaiah is warning King Ahab saying, "Brother, we are we are off track. There is idolatry in the land. There is coming judgment." But what's interesting is that there are other sons that Isaiah speaks of. Isaiah has a son, his own son, that is named Maher Shalal Hashbaz. That's my best attempt. Let me tell you what it means in English, though. It means the spoil speeds, the prey hastens. So the Lord gave Isaiah a son and, and told him to name him, this mouthful of words, as a name, to warn the king of the impending judgment. However, uh, the Lord also promises another son to Isaiah saying that you will have a son and I want you to name him Shiar Jashub, which means a remnant will return. So this idea that Emmanuel, God with us, there is judgment coming, but God ultimately is not going to abandon his people. There is going to be a people that, that are kept safe by God. That's the context where we have Isaiah seven fourteen, where he says, "Behold, a virgin shall conceive, and they shall call his name Emmanuel." And so, throughout uh, redemptive history, the Lord has revealed what His people have needed at a given time, and we are understand we understand that for Israel in Isaiah's day, they wouldn't have fully understood the details of that line, that a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel. But in the context of these other sons that were promised to Isaiah and the names that they were given, we can understand that this verse in Isaiah would have been one of these verses that stands out. It is loaded with this messianic promise because, one, we know that Uh, Isaiah's wife and Isaiah conceived the way every other baby has been conceived. And so that stands out that this verse would have said, a virgin shall conceive. But notably, he has a different name than these other boys that were born. His name is not speaking of judgment that is impending, and it's not even speaking of a remnant that will return. A virgin shall conceive and his name shall be Emmanuel. God. With us. And so, Matthew, as he hears the story of how this Jesus came into the world, immediately thinks wait a second, this is the promised birth. The Lord wasn't just speaking metaphorically through the prophet Isaiah, it actually was a promise of a Messiah, of an anointed one. The word Messiah, Christ, means anointed one. And throughout Scripture, oftentimes where there is anointing, there is a movement of the Spirit connected with it. No different here. The Holy Spirit somehow in Mary's womb conceives of this God man man through his mother, Mary biologically, and God through the Holy Spirit. I don't really know why, but for some reason, the virgin birth is often one of those first targets that liberal theologians go after. In wanting to explain away the supernatural, people, have, people struggle with the virgin birth. They want to explain it in, in other ways. We spoke a lot about the incarnation throughout our study of 1 John because that's something that he was dealing with. So I'm not going to spend a ton of time there this morning. You can go back and listen to those sermons, uh, particularly 1 John 1. I know in my first sermon, I spent a lot of time talking about the incarnation because John is speaking of the light made manifest. But suffice to say that the virgin birth is not the most miraculous miracle of the Bible. Ultimately, if you can believe that a dead man rose back to life, then this should be easier to believe than that. And, and it comes from the same place of our hearts as we ask the Lord to help us trust what His Word says, even when it is supernatural, even when it goes beyond what we have seen with our eyes, we can trust God's Word that if this is what He says happened, we can trust that that is what happened. And in the same way that the Holy Spirit somehow in Mary's womb conceived a baby, the God-man, then from that we know that this was no ordinary man. His death can have special meaning and his resurrection can be trusted as well. Matthew's use of Isaiah is not simply some uh, proof of a of a virgin birth prophecy it is suggesting that god's presence is now in this christ child himself and so let's look beyond just the promised birth and let's consider the perfect bridegroom and for this i mentioned we're going to take the argument from the lesser to the greater let's study joseph's experience first and see how he was a good husband and to say that if he was a good husband how much greater is jesus as the perfect bridegroom. Point number two, the perfect bridegroom. Now, the birth of Jesus took place in this way, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. So they're engaged, they have not had the wedding ceremony yet, but they go together. But before they came together, before the wedding had been consummated, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Think about put yourself in Joseph's shoes. Up to this point in history, every baby had been conceived one way. It is understandable to think that he could have been hurt. He could have been upset. He could have been righteously upset. He could have been indignant at a wrong that was done to him. He could have brought, he could have vindicated himself in a way that brought shame upon Mary as a consequence for her supposed sin. and If she had sinned, she would have deserved that. However, notice the character of this man Joseph. Her husband Joseph, verse 19, was a just man and unwilling to put her to shame. That word just, carries with it the idea of righteousness. Perhaps your translation says he was a righteous man. He was upright. His life lined up with the will of God. He lived a life that demonstrated the way God would want a person to live their life. And so his actions are not that he just vindicates himself and brings shame upon Mary. Instead, he determines to divorce her quietly. He's resolved to divorce her quietly. He holds his fiance and his marriage with open hands and trusts that vengeance belongs to the Lord. He bears the shame in himself. He absorbs the pain and the brokenness himself. He was willing to show mercy to his fiance. That mercy points us to God. However, Joseph then receives the good news. Not just good news, the good news. The Messiah, had come, and in fact, that is the baby that is in her stomach. Joseph thought that Mary had broken their marriage covenant before it even started, but she had not. The angel of the Lord tells him, fear not, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." We are in wedding weekend. And so, as Dan mentioned and prayed, thank you for praying for our marriages, brother. Um, That's on my mind as well. And I mentioned a little bit about covenant yesterday in the ceremony, but I want to take a little bit more time today and think about this. Covenants are so much more than just legal contracts. Covenants create a new relationship between two parties. They give durability and security to that relationship and to those people in a way that if if those people just continued to be friends because they liked each other, a covenant gives more strength to that relationship because it is also legally binding. An intimate personal relationship is made more personal by a covenant. Throughout scripture, the Lord relates to his people through covenants. Mary had not broken the marriage covenant before it started. She was innocent. However, in considering how Jesus is greater than Joseph, I want us to think about the ways that we as God's people, and throughout human history, have been the unfaithful bride. We have broken the marriage covenant. One of the most significant passages of scripture from from Jeremiah is quoted in Hebrews. It's the longest Old Testament quote in the New Testament. In Hebrews chapter 8, it says, but as it is, Jesus Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, and this is quoting Jeremiah, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers, on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law into their minds and and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities. and I will remember their sins no more." Right after that in Jeremiah, the Lord says that he will be a husband to his people. As the Lord had revealed his purposes, through redemptive history in the Old Testament, there would have been a tension as you're reading the story along. Because God keeps making these covenants with his people, with Adam, with Noah, with Abraham, with Moses, with David, with the people of Israel. And All along the way, there are covenant blessings and covenant curses. The the contractual element of the covenant says as long as you are worshiping me as the only true God, as you are following my commandments, then you will, be, you will be doing your part to stay in the covenant and I will be your God and you will be my people and there will be blessing. But if you break the covenant, if you are unfaithful to me, if you worship other gods, then there are curses that come with that. Eventually through the prophets, he says, you are going to be kicked out of this promised land because of your sin, because you have broken the covenant. And So there's this tension. Are the covenants dependent on the human agent upholding their end of the deal or not? God is faithful and he shows great patience with his people, but does that mean that our actions don't matter at all? I think people generally fall into one of those two categories. Either you think that the way we relate to God does depend on our actions, and so you end up toward legalism. You think that to to maintain a right relationship with the Lord, you have to just earn his approval through what you do. Living that way reduces God to be some caricature that's just waiting for you to mess up. And the moment that you do, here comes a curse, here comes punishment. On the other hand, if our actions don't matter at all, we can live our lives uh, as Romans 6 would say, should we sin that grace may abound? By no means, but we can live that way as if our sin doesn't really matter, our actions don't really matter because grace abounds. God is faithful. He will always uphold his end of the covenant. So it doesn't really matter what we do. This tension is finally, clearly resolved in the person of Jesus. And So let's consider some differences between Joseph and Jesus. Because Joseph was a good and faithful husband. And Mary was innocent. We are not innocent, but Jesus is a more faithful husband than Joseph. That's the first crucial difference is is actually not in Joseph and Jesus, but in Mary and, and us. Mary was innocent. She had done nothing wrong. She was being used by the Holy Spirit to bring forth the anointed one, the Messiah into the world. We have broken the covenant. We have been unfaithful. Our sin is rebellious treason against God, our maker. And so what Jesus does is so much more amazing and glorious. Joseph was a righteous man, upright, just, and out of his righteousness he decided to show mercy to his bride. Jesus was also righteous, perfectly righteous, in that he was a new kind of Adam because he was not fathered by a human man, he was fathered by the Holy Spirit. and His perfect, righteous, upright, just life, led to him showing mercy to his bride by absorbing her punishment in himself. Joseph resolved to divorce Mary quietly. Jesus went before Pilate, quiet as a lamb. He didn't vindicate himself when he was truly righteous. The book of Leviticus, at least in the ESV, whenever it's talking about sexual sin, it talks about uncovering nakedness. Don't sleep with your neighbor's wife and uncover her nakedness. Joseph didn't expose Mary's nakedness as if she had sinned. And yet Jesus' naked body was nailed to a tree. He paid the penalty for our sins, and in doing so, wipes away our shame. Church, what are you tempted to feel shame about? If you are prone toward that legalistic side of things, of thinking that the new covenant is somehow dependent on you living the Christian life, and earning God's favor and maintaining that good relationship. Then I know that there is something that will tempt you to feel shame. Because we are not in glory yet and we still have sin in our lives. Perhaps there is hidden sexual sin that can bring a great deal of shame. What are the things playing through your mind that you're like, if that was put on the screen for us to all watch right now, it'd be very uncomfortable. We have a better bridegroom than Joseph. His death did not just pay for our sins like the penalty, but they take away even our shame of them. Romans 7, Paul is this back and forth. I do what I don't want to do. I don't do what I want to do. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For God has done in Christ what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. He sent his Son in the likeness of human flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh so that we who walk by the Spirit might have the righteousness of God put to our account. Colossians 2 says, and you who were dead in your trespasses in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. I love the way that Paul phrases that, the record of our debt. Christ has paid for our sins. He has paid the penalty, but he has also abolished the record of our debt. When the Lord says that in the new covenant, I will remember their sins no more. It is not just that they have been paid for, but in Christ, in his death, the Lord is sovereignly forgetting about them for all time. The record of debt was nailed to the cross. It wasn't a piece of paper listing out our sins. Jesus' body was nailed to the cross, wiping away the record of our debt. We can live in the fulfillment of that covenant promise that was coming. We are in the new covenant now where God says, I will be their God and they will be my people. Put that again in just marriage ceremony language. You are mine and I am yours. Christian, Jesus is not ashamed to call you his bride. And it is out of experiencing that love that we are motivated to walk in love and obedience to him. Jesus is the promised Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one. And he is Emmanuel, God with us today by his Holy Spirit. I mentioned it in my prayer before the sermon, but just as the Holy Spirit did a physical miracle in the womb of Mary, causing a new kind of man to be born. The Holy Spirit continues to work today, causing dead sinners to come to new life through new birth. We are new men and women in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let us look to Jesus, the son of David, the bridegroom who is more faithful than Joseph, whose actions are more glorious than his and let's be motivated to love and obey Him having been loved by Him. Let's pray together. Father, thank You so much for Your Word. Thank You for the different gospel accounts that give us different lenses to look through the story of our Savior and see Him and praise Him and love Him all the more for what we see. Would you continue the work that you've begun in your church? Would you wash and purify your bride? May we not think that our actions are what maintain the right relationship with you. May we recognize that your actions have earned us a right relationship with you. And may we not think that our actions don't matter because you will forever be faithful. May we see what you did on the cross and be motivated toward right living. Help us to live more obediently to your word because you have loved us first. And so we love you and want to express that love through keeping the new covenant, through obeying your word. Help us to do this by the power of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.